Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to round 24 of TKO here on Joe together with 32 Red. We are a podcast and YouTube show with you every Thursday. Now, I've got a different sparring partner this week because Carl, as you know, is neck deep in camp in preparation for his fight in Philadelphia on the 10th of August. So I'm solo this week and we've come to Loughborough University. Now, this place is the hub of UK sport. We've got some of the top athletes in the world trained here, a lot of the GB Athletics team, a lot of the England cricket team, rugby players train here too. And one of the rising stars of British boxing over the last three years. Heavyweight sensation Dylan White is now just a couple of days out from his WBC final eliminator against Colombian Oscar Rivas live at the O2 Arena on Saturday night. We're going to be catching up with the man himself, Dylan White, as he makes his final preparations, uh, as well as his coach and trainer, Mark Tibbs. This is round 24 of TKO. This is the Loughborough Martial Arts Centre. Now, this used to be a gym uh, when I was a student here some seven or eight years ago. It's now been turned into a purpose kind of fight facility. Dylan exclusively bases himself out of here now. He lives above a, a pub just down the road from here, works with Mark Tibbs, his trainer, who used to be at West Ham ABC back in the day under the guidance of his dad, Jimmy Tibbs, who, of course, trained Frank Bruno and more recently Billy Joe Saunders. So you've got all the fighters in the ring at the moment. You've got Charlie Duffield, John Harding Jr. with a white headband on, Richard Riatpour, cruiserweight, who's fighting Chris Bill and Smith on Dylan's undercard at the O2. And, of course, Dylan himself, who's up against uh, undefeated Colombian Oscar Rivas, who's 26 and 0. That will all be live at the O2 on Saturday night. It's a great setup they've got here. As I said, this is really the kind of hub of, of UK sport. Let's have a little wander a little bit closer. So a lot of these guys were originally based in Miguel's gym in Brixton. Um, essentially, I think when Dylan's in camp, I think some of those guys still do train out of there, but when Dylan's in camp, they come up for kind of sparring. Obviously, Rich and Dylan very close in weight. John Harding, I think, is a super well-tall middleweight, but he still does some sparring. Uh, with Dylan for extra speed work, sometimes jumps in with Josh Boazzi, the light heavyweight as well. Um, and I know D Dylan's kind of been a, a mentor figure to a, a lot of these guys, gives them opportunities that some of them might not have, have got otherwise. Uh, Richard, uh, for example, came up through the kind of small hall scene, um, one of Mickey Heliot's fighters, boxed at York Hall a few times, and then got his kind of first crack uh, on one of Dylan's undercard as part of the matchroom shows. And I think it says a lot about Dylan that he's thinking not only about his own career as a boxer, he's thinking about um, life after, thinking about management and, and also just bringing up his cohort, raising up other fighters by giving them opportunities that um, he worked so hard to kind of carve out for himself. So this really, what you're seeing is, is a product of, of Dylan's kind of forward thinking approach. You know, it's his stable, it's, it's his tribe, as you, if you will. And... Um, so far, so good for, for all of the guys that you see in the ring. So Mark, is just putting the gloves on Dylan for a little bit of pad work. Um, sparring will have all been done now. You know, I imagine what would have been a 10 or a 12 week camp. We'll find out from Mark a little bit later on. The gloves that Dylan will be wearing on the night will be 10 ounces, much, much smaller, do much, much more damage. And those two linked up after the Anthony Joshua fight and safe to say that the improvements that Dylan has made under Mark have been substantial. You know, he had some technical shortcomings in his game um, going into the Anthony Joshua fight and what Mark has, has done is really, really tightened Dylan up, sharpened him up, his shot selection is much better, his balance is, is much improved. One thing that Mark said is that uh, Dylan's still got that dog in him, still got that fight in him, so sometimes he will just stand and trade, go back to basics. 
And that's what makes him such a, a, a big ticket seller, such a crowd pleaser. See, um, Mark Tibbs has got his elbows uh, strapped up. And that is because, well, I think for very obvious reasons, you can, if, you listen, if, you, if you're listening to the audio, you'll be able to hear the impact of the shots on the pads. But that impact really is reverberating right the way down through the arms, through the shoulders. And Mark, he's not a small guy, but he's not what you describe as a, as a big bloke. And he's got someone 18 stone every day whacking those pads, all that force going through his wrists, his elbows, his shoulders. And that over time really takes its toll. Speak to a lot of the top coaches who've had heavy-handed fighters, Dave Colwell with Tony Bellew, Rob McCracken with Anthony Joshua. Adam Boob, David Hay, all, all of them say the same thing. They're like, your, your shoulders, your elbows really, really do take a, a pasting in the duration of a, of a camp. So he's got those straps up tight, hopefully just to minimise the impact of, uh, of what's coming back at him. The idea of, of good pad work, really, is to try and meet the fighter's punch on the extension of that punch to provide enough resistance to give them a bit of snap so they can work on the timing of their shots, the rhythm of the punches, provide enough resistance to kind of simulate you know, what they're going to be hitting, which is essentially another person. But it's a fine art pad work. If you meet the punch too early, it can jar the, the elbows and the shoulders of the guy that's throwing it and not allowing to extend fully through the punches. But if you meet it too late, then the opposite happens. They kind of hyperextend the elbow and the, and the shoulder. And if you've ever hit pad yourself, it can be quite a painful experience. And speaking of painful experiences, Mark has just strapped on the, um, the body shield, which is uh, typically used for these kind of heavy-handed fighters when you're working on throwing shots to the body. And well, he's called the body snatcher and not for no reason either, seriously heavy-handed to the body. Mark just strapping it on, he said it makes me feel uh, a little bit more significant. He's going to need it, honestly. You had uh, Sky Sports Andy Clark, uh, commentator that you'll hear on Saturday night. He came up and strapped on the same body shield and took a few digs to the ribs from Dylan. And it didn't look like a fun experience, and he reckons that Dylan was probably only at about 50-60%. He did wind up one particularly late on. And uh, goodness me, I mean, it takes probably 40% of the impact out of the shot, I would say. But if you're in there with somebody that's heavy-handed, you really, really do feel the weight of those shots. I'd be interested to see Dylan just sinking a few in, see their little counter left it to the body. Just catch and shoots one in. Something we used to see a lot from uh, the great Roberto Duran. So I'm just going to stick a microphone onto Mark now. Do you want to lean over here, Mark? Just chuck it down your right, right rib, mate. So we've got 10 seconds, no rush, no rush. Yeah. That'd be right there, wouldn't it? Yeah, if that's all right, if that's okay That'd with you. Right. Ain't going nowhere. We'll put that, I'm just going to fold. Right. We've botched the mic onto Mark. Um, hopefully he doesn't get hurt when Dylan whacks him in the ribs, because it's just wedged between his, uh, his body pad and his ribs at the moment. Oh. I think uh, for those of you on the podcast, that was a little left hook to the, uh, the body just where our microphone sat, so that might be on the scrappy. Tell you what, his, his shots are so much improved. So, so much improved, so much straighter. He's turning right through them from the hip. 
the snap and the power straight through them is um, this is the best that I've seen him look. Certainly in the gym. Go, 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 go. This is good, just Mark telling Dylan to just vary up the tempo of his shots, the power of the shots. Sometimes he really sits down on the jab, sometimes it's just a light touch and then the right hand comes in. And when you throw combinations, the best fighters in the world, they vary the shot that they put the power through. It's not always that every shot has to be with thumping power and everything behind it. Sometimes a three-punch combination, they'll put the fist through the second shot, sometimes they'll put it through the third shot. Sometimes it'll be through the first shot, but it's the variety and the uncertainty that keeps the opponent guessing that can sometimes cause tentativity. And that's the mark of a, of a good fighter and of a developing fighter. See, now they're working on the offensive stuff when he's got Rivas backed onto the ropes. And the feet come a little bit squarer. He's kind of like the inside fighting stuff. So when the shots are shorter, more power, those digging, sharp body shots that just suck the wind out. You see how much Mark is, uh, is sweating as well. It tells you all about how much hard work it is for, for him too. Again, that nice pull counter off the one-two. And even though we're a few rounds in now, Dylan's kind of defensive responsibility, his hand positioning is so much tighter than it has been in the past. You see the way he's throwing that jab every time the right hand's glued by the chin mimicking, kind of parrying a counter right hand, keeping his head off centre line when his hands are down. See there, just blocking the two hooks, stepping out the way of the uppercut. Everything he does is geared towards hitting, anticipating the counter and then going again in the second phase. Mark Tibbs perilously close on occasions to just catching a right hand. They were just whistling past him. Sure, once or twice they, uh, they do find the mark. But he's been there and done it himself, so he's no stranger to uh, taking a couple of licks. Lovely right hand there. Sweaty, good. sweaty work, son. Did he hit you then? Did you get a little... It's me all the time. <laughs> cheeky one at the top of the throat, did you? No, he's all right. On the nose. <laughs> On the nose. He's very, he's very accurate. Oh, you've been there, mate. You've been there. Mate, do you know what? It looks, he looks so looks much better now. Yeah, does he? He really, yeah, really nice does. Nice like yourself. Just really, like... Yeah, really even, like, even just the way that, like... Just he's, he looks like he's thinking as he's throwing. Yeah, absolutely. You've got him, like, thinking about, like, the two phases, like, he's, he's jabbing, he's thinking about what's coming back. Next, that's right, that's and right. And that's really, um... But it's yeah. all, like, it's all, it's much more fluid than it has that's been it. in the past. Fluid. Turning through the See, shots. The only way, the only way... He can put himself back there as he gets his motion on and goes back to his old ways. Nothing wrong with his old ways, but he's moving up in levels. So he's mixing with people that've got pedigree. And they read, and they're very good at reading stuff before they do it, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Before you do it, sort of thing. So he understands that and he's uh, he's very he just needs reminding to stay cool. Uh, so just grabbing a couple of minutes with Simon Evans, who officially is uh, one of the physios here at Loughborough. Unofficially, I know you do a lot of coordinating and a lot of other stuff that's kind of beyond your remit. Uh, how long have you been working with Dylan for? Uh, so I've been with him for around uh, about three and a half years now, since, since his Joshua fight, and this will be the 10th, 10th camp. Wow. Yeah. A lot of fights since then, isn't it? And he's come a long way. How much do you put that down to the facilities and things that are around him? Because I don't... I think many people, unless they've, they've been party to what goes on here, yeah. know just what a huge difference this kind of setup can make. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, clearly Dillian has his own natural ability anyway. Um, and that's, that got him to, to the level he was at. And then after the Joshua fight, 
he came here and we really introduced him to a load of new things. He's a proper strength and conditioning program, his physio from injury prevention, his nutrition, um, everything. He's just his, his general well-being and, and we just made it far more structured and, and professional. And, and with that, I mean, you can see the results, how he's getting on in, in the ring. From a technical point of view, we were talking earlier off camera, you were saying about the way he was punching when he first got here yeah, versus yeah. what he's doing now. We could see on the pads and hear the, hear the power for people who are listening on the podcast. Yeah. What was that technical shortcoming? What, what are you seeing now three years later? Yeah, so he's very much, when he first arrived, he was very much upper body dominated. So he was just, it was throw his punches, but all the strength would be coming from the shoulder. But now we're really incorporating full body functional movements. So really getting that hip drive in, getting his legs in, because they're the biggest, strongest muscles in your body. So you, if you can incorporate them into your performance, and that's only going to help you. So his kind of weights program, is that geared towards a lot of explosive movements, compound lifts and things that maybe he wasn't doing before? Yeah, absolutely. So speaking to Al, his strength and conditioning coach, he, he has, it's, it's very much um, phase. So you have uh, part of it will be power, part of it will be strength. Uh, part of it explosive and, and also you've got, you've got to bear in mind the endurance element to it as well so it's, it's the full package and, and you've just got to take every element of the fight itself uh, and, and break it all down and really train around that So your role as physio I imagine yes. a big part of it is kind of prehab and injury prevention yep. but also management of injuries when they do occur so talk me through a, a kind of a, a, an average um, sort of week when you're in camp within the kind of things you have to manage Yeah so um I have a good relationship with Dylan anyway. Over three and a half years or ten fights, you'd, you'd expect that to just evolve, and it has done. So, so you can be quite straight talking with each other and, and just say it how it is. And um, and with that, I, you know, it's quite fluid and there's good dialogue. So if there's anything which happens, uh, we can jump on that really quickly. And because I have that good link with them, it, the key is to action, action quickly as well. Okay. So is there anything that you, you've had to work on particularly in this camp? I mean, you don't have to say if you don't want to say that. Any, anything particular? Well, I have, to, I have to admit, this camp has been great from that respect. I'm not just saying that because you're here. <laughs> Genuinely, it's... Um, you've, had, you've had a little bit less to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great from that point. He's, he's just he's well within himself. He's, he's doing really well. Now, if we go back a few camps, certainly, certainly the earlier camps, uh, when he had, he had his shoulder operation after a fight in Joshua, certainly that was a bit more intensive and and certainly getting the rehab plans in place and really ensuring his workloads are right and he's doing the right exercises. So, but we have that relationship now where he knows where he stands on the injury and then he'll flag it early. And, and that's actually another thing, because in the early, the early days, he just gets on with it. And he, whilst he knows we're here to help, he wouldn't necessarily say, he just, get, he just gets on with it. And um, over time, that's improved and he, you know, just, just, as I say, just having that good communication. Yeah, I guess you, you know his body probably as well as he does by now as well, don't you? Which, well, well, funny enough, actually, it was the... Um, it was the Parker fight, and um, it was the morning of the fight. Which fight was this? The Parker fight. Oh, sorry. I just we got John Hardy behind us hitting the pad, so I just <laughs> lost that in the uh, in the audience. No, it's fine. Yeah. No, it's the morning of the Parker fight, and um, this kind of kind of goes against slightly what I was just saying. But the reason why I walked into his room, and he had a swollen hand. I was like, "What's this? What's this?" And he sort of pulled his hand back at the same time. So I oh, just I just caught it in, on the jaw or something, you know. It, I'm thinking this this isn't great. We're literally, you're literally fighting about three hours time, and it's really it wasn't just a bit swollen. It was really swollen. Anyway, the, obviously the fight went in head. He got the result, yeah. uh, and it was afterwards. I took him aside. I said, you know, what, "What's that about? What's, you know, why didn't you tell me?" He said, "I did it the week before, and I couldn't tell you because I know what you'd say." 
<laughs> no. Yeah. So he went ahead with the fight, and obviously he clearly got the right result anyway. It, do you know, it's so interesting you say that because and, the morning after that fight, I was yeah. sat in the hotel yeah. opposite him having breakfast, and yeah. he had he was eating breakfast with his right hand, yeah. and he had his left hand in a bu bucket of ice. And that was me that gave was him that bucket you? of ice. No. Yes. <laughs> what a small world it is. What a small world it is. Exactly um, that. Exactly that. Fantastic. So. Fantastic. Um, it's been been great to sort of chat to you yeah. and get an insight yeah. into what you do in the part you play. Because I know, having been here myself, I was lucky enough to, to kind of have the, the facilities and the guidance people like yourself. And yeah. what a huge difference it, it can make to, to athletes. And I don't think boxers generally, the guys in the GB setup as amateurs have an amazing kind of setup around them. But some boxers don't get that kind of guidance. And just, do you think without this, he would be uh, different to the boxer that we see today? Yeah, I, I do, I do. Um, partly because it's just, it's the facility that's come here, it's, it's the coaching that comes with it, but also it's the education, and, and he's far more wise and aware about his body and what he should be doing, which he wasn't necessarily able to do beforehand. Uh, and education is, is key to, to pretty much everything. Good stuff. Simon, great to meet you. Thank Thanks you. very much. All Cheers. Right. Cheers, thank you. Joe presents TKO, together with 32 Red. So a few days later, uh, we've come to London uh, last week. You had, I don't know, 15, 20 media interviews and we missed you at the end. You had to let the dogs out, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, of course, man. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, um, it's just an event. You know, I mean, I've got a life to live around it. So that life, obviously, got other things, dogs, people, family and stuff. So I was in that place till like five o'clock. Couldn't leave my dogs inside that long. Sorry that you guys were on the short end of the deal, but... Busy schedule, day, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you find the demands of doing all the things you have to do in the build-up to fight week? Because presumably it's the time where you need to conserve as much energy as possible, but actually it's the time where you have to give so much to so many people, you have to answer so many questions, sort of things out. You know, it's part and parcel. It's your job, in it? You know what I mean? It's part of your job, so I just get it done. But then I try and get these guys to manage um, the amount of work I have to do and stuff because it's quite frustrating, you know what I mean, obviously. Because mm. you want to keep everyone happy. You know, I felt bad after not doing it with you guys, but also at the same time, you know, I think of myself and the dogs and other things as well. Of course, so, yeah. You know. We're all good and we're here, so so it's no problem at all. So four days away now, fight mm. night of the O2, another headliner for you, another promise of a final eliminate from the WBC. I feel like this is Groundhog Day, like we've been here several times before. <laughs> How does it feel from your point of view? I don't care about the WBC, what they do, man. I just focus on me. It's a big fight. I just try to make sure that I'm fully focused and fully trained and fully switched on, man. It's very easy to... Focusing this, focusing that, focusing mm. and then your mind is not where it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I make sure my mind is exactly where it's supposed to be, whatever has happened, happened. One of the, the hallmarks of great fighters from the 50s, 60s, 70s was the regularity with which they fought. And the yeah. average for the 50s, 60s was like six times a year. And it's slowly gone down to a point where we're at the, the biggest heavyweight fighters fight once, twice a year. You fought 10 times in the last three years. Is boxing regularly something that you try and do and is it important to you? You know, it's funny, I'm one of the top guys in the game, but I'm like, my experience level is way, way down. This guy been boxing for 20 years, 25 years. I've been boxing for 11 years. Mm. And I had seven amateur fights. Like, this guy I'm boxing at over 200 amateur fights. <laughs> you know, he's had 26 professional fights, I've had 26 professional fights. So I just try and box as much as I can, try and get as much experience as I can, more camp, more training, you know. I try and throw the same punch over and over and over until I master it, man. Mm. So I just, it's good for me to be busy and keep chipping away and just keep on it, learning and improving as well, you know? I feel like you're learning and improving. So much of it's happened in the last three years because you've changed so much around you in terms yeah. of support. At what point did you look at yourself, your career, the structure around you and say, 
I need to up my game, what I need to make changes. When I got beaten by Joshua, you know, I look at what he was doing and what I was doing and what it was like different between day and night, you know, I was chilling by myself, eating whatever my mum made, whatever I was at home, living life, cracking on, training through pain, injuries and stuff, which eventually broke me down in the end anyway. I never saw a physio once up until that point. I didn't even get a massage or anything. I was just training and just living life. I never dieted. I never thought, oh, you know, eat this, eat that. I just thought, oh, yeah, this is what I grew up on. This is good enough. I grew up on eating um, Caribbean food. <laughs> and they think it's the best food in the world, you yeah. know. It's good food. Tastes Don't good, get me wrong. Yeah. It's great food. It's great food. Very nutritious as well, but... As I compete in World Level Athlete, you need to be more scientific and change certain things. Mm. Realise there's better nutrients in other things, you know. We broke it down and so you know what? We need to change this. And then that led me to Loughborough University, man. Because mm. in professional sport, in any sort of team sport or racket sport, the top people have access to like national funding, they'll have a, a national training base, they'll have physio, they'll have strength and conditioning coaches, they'll have people to advise them on all of these different areas. And that's set up, you walk into that system and it's like you're back to school. For a boxer, even if you're at the top level, as you are, you have to set that structure up. So how do you go uh, about... If you, you come to that? the GB and the GB squad, you have that set up. In right? the amateurs, yeah. But yeah. as a pro, it's very, there's very few that, that have access to the, the kind well, of Well, most of the guys that come through the GBs, when they turn pro, they remain there anyway. Yeah, that's true, yeah. You know, that's how Joshua has been... He's remained there his whole career. Mm. You know what I mean? So he had that set up. And that's where he had to jump on me because he's been doing that for 11, 12 years and... I've been doing it for, you know, I just started doing it basically, you know what I mean? So he already had the jump on me in performance, science, knowledge, mm. know-how, proper training and everything. But I still almost got the job done because there's more to fighting than all of this stuff, you know what I mean? You, you have natural fighters who possess certain natural talents, you have guys who are warriors. You know, thank God um, I've produced a lot of them qualities and now we're just trying to mellow it out, train, do add all the little bits and pieces, man. You talk about being a natural fighter. Mark was talking to Mark uh, last week and he said the things you've worked on and you can see it just as a fan, you can see the way that you've technically sharpened up your game, your shot selection, the way you think about mm. the, the fight, the IQ, everything's gone up as a result of the work you've done with Mark yeah. in, in the gym. But the one thing he said that he didn't want you to lose was the, the natural dog that's in you, the natural fighter that's in you. Do you think it's important to find a balance between the two? That would never go. It? Anyone that knows me knows um, there's more chance of... Um... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would never go. Yeah. That's just me as a person. That's my genetic makeup. It's what I've done. It's all surviving. It's all I'm staying alive and being in this position where I am now. So I never worry about that. I like to worry. Reason Mark said, I like to worry about the technical stuff, the more finesse stuff, trying to learn it because that's my weak area. Yeah. You know, why am I going to work in my strong area? Mm. So a lot of people worry about me losing that, whatever. I'm like, listen, you don't need to worry about that. Whenever time it's time to throw down, I'll throw down, you know. But do you ever look back, I mean, like the Parker fight, 12th round, for example, where you're up on the cards, you go into that round, but you fought like you were nine rounds down needing a knockout, and then obviously it was a it was a mad round. But do you feel, looking back on that, it might have been better to play that little safer? I would never be that guy. Yeah. You know, we're not going there, trying to entertain, that's trying to get the job done. You know, um, sometimes, obviously, you try and pick up a winner or whatever, but... I don't feel comfortable doing that, you know. I want to try and win every round, every second, every minute. I want to try and create as much um, physical and mental damage as I can mm. while I'm in there, you know. I'm like that every day, but, you know, once I get in there, I just think, you know what, it is what it is. I want to get hold of this man and try and, and rip him to pieces if I can, 
you know, and that's my mindset. I don't think, oh, I'm 12 run up, I'm gonna start messing about. No, let's go till the bell's finish. Sometimes a little bit after the bell's finish, but. <laughs> Do you rely on Mark then in between rounds if he feels like he needs to rein you in a little bit and just remind you to get back to what it is you're supposed to be doing? Is, is that the point, those 60 seconds in between a round where you and him, you listen to what he says and if he says, listen, you can't <laughs> we, get down. We have a good relationship, you know what I mean? Um, Mark doesn't need to say much to me, to be honest. I just know what he wants me to do and he knows where I'm at, what I'm doing and stuff like that. And I just automatically knows in my head, it's like, okay, I'm in this position, Mark mm. would want this or Mark would want me to up the output. He just reminds me sometimes that, oh, deal, keep this going, keep that going. I've already said that, I just need little reminders here and there, but I know my coach, he knows me, he knows what I'm like, and I know what he's like, and I know that, okay, when I'm, in, when I'm doing this, the guy's saying, Mark wants this, or he wants me to do this. I just know, I just know you have a relationship with your coach. Mm. You know, we've had 10 fights now coming up, so we know each other now. It's mad how many fights you've had since that Joshua. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's been a long road, man. Been a long road, you know, it's been a long, just through it. Everyone has been professional at the same time as me, just after me, fought for road title two or three times, mm. you know, apart from me. You know, some won, some lost, but they still fought for, look at Brazil, he's had two road title shot, mm. and he's just lost both of them for two different governing bodies, you know. Parker, uh, you know, Andy Ruiz, all of these guys, you know. You were sitting there just now listening to Teddy Atlas comments about how long you've been waiting, how long we've all been waiting mm. for you to have a world title shot. Um, also, the, the kind of general consensus is that never has a fighter been kept from a title ch a, a champion longer than you've never been kept from Deontay Wilder. Of, never in the history of sports why? in general, not just in boxing. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not one to sit here and say, oh yeah, because I'm dangerous, because I'm this. I don't claim to be the best fighter, the most dangerous fighter, the most strongest fighter, but Deontay Wilder sees something in me that he knows that, you know what, this guy could potentially be a massive problem. And this, my courage and my heart, my desire and my hunger, my, dis my discipline as well, which is becoming a thing, which is a new thing. And these guys have seen, they've seen or I've lost or a comeback or a change. They've seen me, you know, seeing that I'm tough. they see me get knocked down in the last round and still get up and still do my thing. they see me press twice. they see me come from behind. they see me get knocked out and get back up. You know what I mean? They've they, they seen... You know, you see, there's a burning desire in me that I don't go away easy. I'm not easily put down. I fight as you can see that, you know. Mm. That's like um, when certain fighters do certain things, I'll give them credit because I'm like, you know what? I don't like you, but that was good. That was that was excellent. Even the combo just to put Andrew Ruiz down with, I was like, oh, I, was, I was like, yeah, that's, that's some sick combo, the way he done it, mm. you know. But then Ruiz came back and beat him. So, you know, I gave Ruiz a lot of credit for that, you know, because... He went in as an adult to the fight and shot notice and done it. Fury getting up from Deontay Wilder's knocked down in the 12th round. You know, I admire all those things. So I give these guys credit for those things openly, you know. Just want your shot. Yeah, but let's see what happens, man, you know. I've learned, you know, you can't focus on these things, man. You have to just keep cracking mm -hmm. on, man. Otherwise, I wouldn't be fighting. I wouldn't be giving my fans a fight at once. I'd just be waiting, 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 waiting. I'd have fighting. Nobody's like what some of these guys do, you know. I didn't have to fight Oscar Rivers. Oscar Rivers is the kind of guy you fight only if you're mandatory to fight him, if he's managed to fight you for a title or for a royal title. You don't fight these kind of guys. Look at Fury, he just fought Tom Schwartz and I could have fought that similar opponent, find mm. some garbage guy with an undefeated record and just say, yeah, this guy's good, he's undefeated. Sure, knocking out some guys and just fight someone like that. No one would complain about that. Speaking of Fury, I saw you, first time I ever saw you fight live was um, 
at Blue Water, Mick Hennessy's mm. build. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. I remember. So what was, I, I guess, what, seven, eight years ago, maybe, like something like that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm getting on a bit. But f- yeah, DeGale was there, Eubank was boxing that night as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Fury's, one of his family members, I think Phil Fury was there, Fu- Tyson was there. So Tyson has seen the work you've had to put in and how hard your route has been. And he's seen you go up through the levels. Knowing that you've crossed paths a number of times, knowing he knows how hard you work to get to the I've position you're in. I've been in camp with him. I've lived in a traveller, sat with him for two months, I think it was. Lived in a, sat with them, stayed in the same place with them, ate in the same place with them. He knows me well. I've been in many camps with him. So why do you think he takes seemingly so much kind of pleasure in, you know, coming out and saying, I'm going to be the one to block your, your shot of Deontay Wilder because me and... Wild have got these two fights lined up. What what does that make you feel when you hear him say things like that and Fury take kind just of glee? Talk in it? Shit, just a media whore, you know. He says whatever he thinks people want. You know what Fury's good at doing? Conning the public. He's very, very good at rallying the public to his side, using the the sympathy act and and saying stuff like, oh yeah, you know, mental health, um, when I fight the end of the world, I'm gonna give all my money to charity and stuff like that. Amazingly, this charity has never surfaced, so there's no Evidence of him doing all of this, you know what I mean? Um, he says he'll give his whole process. You know, this guy just talks nonsense, but, you know, the boxing media and the fans will give him the platform to do stuff like that, you know. It starts rubbish. One minute he was saying good stuff about me. Ah, oh, Dillian's done well. He's done this. The WBC's taking the piss. She's going to tap there. Now he's saying that. Same with Joshua. When Joshua lost, oh, you know, the fellow Brit- British guy, um... He will come back and then the next minute he's saying, oh, Joshua, it's garbage. He's just... Mm. Tyson Fury just talks nonsense the whole time. He, you don't get wrong, he's a good fighter. He's a big guy, awkward guy, good fight. But he just talks nonsense the whole time. It's just... He just... It's very difficult to understand what he's trying to gain or... Like, you know, he was happy Joshua lost. I'm like, why would he be happy he lost? That's your biggest payday in boxing right there, mm. gone. Mm. It just make no business sense. Mm. It makes... It makes no sense whatsoever. These guys are just stupid. You know, these guys are so stupid. Why would he be happy that one of the biggest cash cow, one of the biggest fighters in the game, lost? You should, you should be sad because you should be one, the one that want to beat him unless you're scared to fight him. Did you have any regrets when Joshua lost, of thinking course. it could have been you? No, no, I didn't regret. Because it wasn't me. I just regret because I took his O as an amateur. He took my O as a professional. I wanted to be the one to take his O again as a professional. Mm. You know, that's why, that was my only regret. Mm. With theory and... and the narrative of mental health and his comeback journey and everything. I think often what he actually did wrong in those two years gets lost in the fact that he was, you know, suffering with mental health difficulties as he says he was. And I've no doubt that there were elements of that. Mm -hmm. But I think perhaps what you're saying is that the public maybe wouldn't have gone as easy on him if he hadn't talked about his problems with mental health. Because we can't forget kind of homophobic slurs, misogynistic slurs, the fact that he was banned from Andrew uh, for two uh, years, uh, cocaine. I'm never, I'm never commenting on this because I know I'll get a lot of sticker. Yeah. Listen. But those are, those are just facts, as in the comments he made, the, the, the Nandrolone alone that he was, found, he, he was I know, banned for. I, I'm neither judge nor jurist. If he yeah. made homophobic comments and he was banned for steroids and, and cocaine and that, that, that's nothing to do with no. me. That's, no, that's nothing to do with you. What, that, you what I'm asking you is, I'm, I'm asking you, do you think the public have gone easier on him because of this this kind of mental health narrative that they forget a lot of the things this happened I mean, in those two years. He's great at covering up and rallying there. What a smart man he is. To wash that all on the carpet, just say, yeah, I was depressed, I was going to kill myself. Whosoever does his publicity for him or whosoever advise him, they're great. People will forget everything, you know. Mm. It's a serious issue. It's not an issue to be joked with. It's not an issue to, to use as an advantage, you know. Mental health is a serious thing. Yeah, absolutely. People are really suffering, and I can't say because I don't know. 
what he was doing and what was going on in his life, but I would never do something like that. As a man, you feel like if you do something wrong, there's certain things you have to take responsibility for yourself and not just always make excuses. All the time. I feel it's all my hands up to what I do wrong, man. You know, I'm, mm. you know, I'm not perfect. I've done a few wrongs here and there, but I just try my best. I try to help people. I just try and do my thing. With me, what you see is what you get. I'm not a guy that will will say one thing behind your back and say another thing in your face or I'm that guy who will pretend to be something I'm not. I am what I am. Mm. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm not where I should be. I, w- I got to where I want to get to yet because people see that, you know, this guy is not going to shut up. He's not going to take money to be paid off or whatever. This guy's going to say what he wants and what he feels, you know. That's what my father teach me. That's what I know to do. You know, I don't know to be anything else, man. It's been the public of changed towards you in the last three years because when you first came on the scene and to fight Joshua you were like kind of painted as the bad guy and you were like the he was the hero you the anti-hero but do you feel now like people have come around to you and they've accepted you for what you are you know, people is understanding and seeing more now because at that point I was a nobody yeah who know who Dylan, Dylan White was no one no one ever knew who it was I actually did to be fair but yeah, but you know, you, you, you're an hardcore <laughs> boxing guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're someone who have an interest in yeah. probably watch amateur fights, watch unlicensed fights, watch mm-hmm. So you know, no one knew who I was. Mm. At that point, I didn't care what they made me out to be or they made me. I just need to arrive. Once I arrive, then I started working and showing people what I am, what I'm about, what I do, shining a bit of my light and my upbringing and other things like that. You know, I didn't, I could use a sympathy story. Um, tough upbringing in Jamaica, shot, stabbed, this, that, and the other. I could have used all of that, but that's not my... That's only came up because people in my team tried to, you know, say, oh, you need to share a bit of light in your story. You know, I don't... I don't. You know, hear me going around crying about these things, you know what I mean? Crying about the tough life I've had growing up in South being a, a Jamaican kid that come here, didn't go to school, couldn't speak English properly, and having that, you know, that's not... I don't like to... Drawing sympathy, man. Mm. It's like, you know, I just want a fair crack at the whip, man. That's yeah. all, you know. Do you feel like, obviously, you're now in a position where you can provide opportunities for guys in the way that you maybe didn't have opportunities when you were up and coming? No one helps me. But these guys, they're talented fighters. I see these guys. I know what it's like to be on the bottom and trying to get your career off and nothing can happen to you. are a good fighter, but then... You're training, then you have to go to work. Or you're training, you're, you're talented, you're, you're hanging in there with the good guys and then you're not getting no opportunities. And no one is helping you. I know what it's like. So for me, I've been through the mill. Thank God I'm doing okay and things is planning up for me. So I think, you know what? A lot of these guys, they'll tell you, I don't even chase them down for management fee and stuff like that. I just help them get them opportunities and, and try and say to them, listen, I hope you get some advantage. Even this new guy I just signed, Alan Babbage, mm. he just said to me, you know, I can't believe 10 days ago, I was a doorman. I'm a top amateur, top MMA fight in my country. People would even spit on me. You know, that's what he said to me. But he came over, he spotted me and I liked the guy, you know, he was telling me, and I liked the guy. I said, you know what, let's get a lesson. And he's had, he's going to have two fights in the space of two weeks. Wow. He can't believe it, you know, he's, he's, he's knocking about. It doesn't cost me anything to help people, you know what I mean? I just try my best to to try and help people and bring them on because no one helped me. I know what it's like to want to give up boxing. Yeah. At what point did you want to give up? Many times, man. It's been hard, man. It's been hard, you know. Even now, I'm one of the top guys in the game. I'm still getting um, fought. I'm still, they're still trying to keep me down. I'm still getting fought left, right and centre, you know. Like, the driving bullet making me jump through hoops, having hard fights after hard fights. So yeah, yeah. It's like there's someone's trying to hope I'm going to slip up and lose to one of these guys mm. so they can get rid of me, you know. 
Deontay Wilder saying, oh, sign a PBC. Oh, fight this guy. Oh, I'm going to make you wait two years. Oh, the WBC seen this and they know about this and they're letting it go on. They got, the IBF yeah. took me at the ranking because I'm WBC silver champion. The club is a real champion. Mm. It doesn't make no sense. You know, WBO giving Usyk the mandatory. That one is not so bad because that's always been in, it's the, in rules the rules for years. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but still, at least let him have one heavyweight fight mm. first. You know what I mean? You know, but it is what it is. Life goes on, you know. You don't crave a spilt milk. You mop it up. And you're still getting headliners. You're still getting paid. And people. And your, your profile is always going to be I, high. I, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I'm just trying to... I'm trying to not... Rob the fans. I'm just going to give the fans good main event, but also a great undercard as well. Yeah, yeah. If you look at all my last few fights, the undercards, every undercard that I've had a saying, cost me a hell of a lot of money because these guys ain't cheap. These guys, are, yeah. these guys are expensive. These guys are, well, if I'm fighting a 50-50 fight, I want this. And I understand, but I just pay it because I want the fans to come out and say, you know what? When I was still in, it was in a great fight, but the undercard, wow, from... Fight number one to the main event. It was a great, memorable fight, you yeah. know, and that's one thing that's big for me. It's hard times for someone to spend 40 or 60 or 100 or 200 pounds or whatever it is on a ticket. That's a lot of money for people. That's a lot of, uh, so, so you want people to feel value, you know, come and say, you know what? That was worth it. I look forward to the next fight. So I know you went to Daniel Dubois' pro debut. Um, you were, yeah, yeah, you were yeah, I'll show yeah. you this video of you going and saying hello to him yeah, backstage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's come a long way. No, he's, listen. You have to keep an eye on what's there and who's there, <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Because I know Daniel Dubois from long before he turned professional. I know him from when he was a kid. You know, I know him from the kid's days he bring him to the gym. But it's just good to be cool and respectful to people, you know. It's, it costs nothing because you don't know who that kid's going to be. You can be nasty to this person and tomorrow he's, the, he's your local bank manager. Mm. You know, you never know what kid's going to be, you know. People don't stay young forever. So... Give people respect and give people time. And there's someone I know for a while. So as he grew up, I was like, you know what? I remember this kid when he's young. He's a bloody giant. Now I'll go and see all Willie's come on. You know, and that's what I just went and watched. What we do on the podcast, we've got a few, got a list of words that I'm going to read out to you. Some of that will ring a bell. It's our 32 second challenge. So I just want you to kind of say the first thing that comes into your head, nice and short answers, okay? Dylan White's 32 second challenge with 32 red. Miguel's boxing gym. Great for the youth. Sonny Liston. Hell of a beast. <laughs> uh, kickboxing. Brutal, but very disciplined sport. First Anthony Joshua fight. War. We just went to war. The second fight was war as well. We just went to war. Potential third Anthony Joshua fight. Be the same thing again. Just an hour at war. Till someone get knocked out. And it won't be... Me and Joshua is never going to have a technical boxing fight. It doesn't matter how hard we train, what we do. Even if we're 60, we're still going to have a brawl. Mm. One of our hips to give up. <laughs> uh, best fight city in the world stuff I'm British of course I'm, I'm British and I'm London of course I'm going to say London but good answer. best fight city is probably going to be Vegas isn't it yeah that's pretty pretty good you answer know, if you're a real person yeah nothing beats London your call is a great um, venue for four days time the O2 that's home yeah. uh, James Tony. Enigma Tyson Fury the boxer good boxer Tyson Fury the man piece of shit Derek Chisora that boy is alright. Our beef is over, so he's alright. Yeah. Our beef is over, so he's yeah. alright. He's alright now. You know, Derek's alright. Yeah. I asked me that question eight months ago. Well, you have a yeah, different yeah. answer. Yeah. Uh, Loughborough. Full of um, smart, intelligent people, man. And finally, the body snatcher. I am who I am. You are who you are. Mm-hmm. Dylan White, thank you for coming on TK. Pleasure to speak to you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Uh, another episode of the show done and dusted. Big thanks to Dylan White and good luck to him on Saturday night at the O2 Live on Sky Sports. Check it out um, and we'll see you again in seven days' time.
You've been listening to TKO on Joe, together with 32 Red.